The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of the word of truth this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary and orient our thinking away from sports activities and kids' activities and household activities and job functions and the worries and cares of the day to focus on the Word. So let's start with a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll begin. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we are grateful that we have this freedom and privilege to gather together to study your word, to explore the truths of your word wherever they might lead us. Father, we thank you we live in a country that guarantees us these freedoms and that we do not take these freedoms lightly. Even now, as our nation is under assault from these terrorists, uh, as we are engaged in this unique war, we pray that you would grant us security, that you would give our leaders wisdom that you would provide us with the insight to be aware of the various possibilities of attack that we might prepare against them, that you would cause the enemies to make mistakes, and that we might be able to catch them before they commit any more acts of terrorism. Father, now as we study your word, pray that we can focus, that our concentration would be solid as we Look at your word, because we know that it is the water of your word that refreshes our souls, and it is the truth of your word that gives us the uh, absolute truth and the strength that we need to be able to face life as it is in reality, as you have defined it, that we might grow spiritually and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. During the uh, Second World War, FDR said it most concisely in one of his speeches that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Few emotional sins are as self-destructive and as self-defeating as fear. When you give in to fear, you become a slave of the object you fear, and you become controlled by the object of your dread. Today, people in this nation are paralyzing themselves with fear. As long as they do this, they let the terrorists win. 
Rarely before in our history have believers in the Lord Jesus Christ had such a fantastic opportunity to stand out and to shine as examples of true courage, bravery, and integrity. And we see this same kind of example in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, beginning again in verse 1. Daniel and the queen mother, Nitocris, stand out as stalwart examples of believers who are applying doctrine in the midst of a national crisis and have complete poise and stability despite the fact that they know that this very night the the kingdom is going to be taken from Babylon. They will be overrun by the enemies of Babylon, by the uh, Persians. And on the new day, there will be a new government in place, a new power in control, and their positions of privilege, their positions of aristocracy will probably no longer be theirs, and they could very well be dead by morning. Remember, the purpose for Daniel is to teach us how to grow to spiritual maturity in a pagan environment. See, too often we think that all the believers in in, uh, the Bible somehow lived in these wonderful environments where everybody around them was a Christian, everybody thought like they did, and nothing could be further from the truth, especially when we get into this period of time when you have people like Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were living outside the land, completely surrounded by Gentiles, who were worshiping the entire pantheon of false gods. What they faced on a day-to-day basis probably was much worse in terms of the overt paganism, immorality, idolatry, and everything that goes with it. It was much worse than anything that you and I faced. The, the, The indoctrination that they went through personally in their own job training, the indoctrination their kids were put through, was probably much greater and much more intense than the kind of indoctrination the world system, the cosmic system, and the secular education system in this country is forcing us through. So it tells us something about how to live our spiritual life and grow to spiritual maturity in the midst of a pagan environment, and that the path to spiritual growth is always through trials. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result that will make you mature and complete. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will, with the temptation, make a way to escape, that you may be able to endure it. And endurance in times of testing, and that means to stick with the Word, stick with applying the Word, no matter how difficult it becomes, no matter how strong the temptation is to bail out and to try some other system to solve life's problems. Sticking with the Word in tough times is the key to spiritual growth. And we've seen that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, clearly demonstrated that. Furthermore, we've seen that every chapter in Daniel sees believers in some kind of either personal or national crisis. We watch how they handle those crises, how they... Uh, keep the external adversity from being transformed into stress in the soul. And this book, ultimately, even though it has much to say about prophecy and God's plan for history, it's not about prophecy, but it's how God continues to maintain control over the affairs of men, even when everything around us seems chaotic and out of control. And the events of chapter 5 are no exception. 
We learn four things here that we've emphasized. First of all, Jesus Christ controls history. No matter how crazy things might seem, no matter how uh, chaotic history might seem, no matter how great the upheaval, we know that Jesus Christ controls history. Second, we emphasize that Jesus Christ is sovereign not only over Gentiles and Jews, but Muslims and Christians, terrorists and criminals. Nothing can happen apart from God's sovereign will. He controls everything. He is uh, allows evil, he controls evil, and he will ultimately bring evil to its final destruction. Third thing we have seen is that the believer's life and destiny is in the hand of God. The believer's life and destiny is in the hand of God. Our, the, the Lord Jesus Christ has already determined from eternity past the time, manner, and the place of your death. And since that has been set from eternity past, why are you worried about it? You know, get on an airplane, go to New York, go to D.C., go into combat, but don't worry about the things we have no control over. God has already determined the time, the manner, and the place of our death. So no matter what our situation might be, whether we're facing an enemy in combat or the potential of some cowardly terrorist act here at home, we can relax because our destiny is in God's hands and we can live life to the fullest. Then the fourth point is that the only security we have in this life is in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ based on Bible doctrine. The only security there is in this life. It's not based on financial security, job security. It's not based on military security. It's not based on political security, legislative security. None of those things can provide real, genuine security in this life. Only the Lord Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him can provide true security. Now, last time, we saw that that this kind of stability is based only on Bible doctrine, which comes from the revelation of God. We started off by looking at a passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah describes, or this passage describes, the contrast that we're going to see between Belshazzar the king on the one hand and Daniel and Nitocris on the other hand. Jeremiah 17.5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. That's what's going on with, with Belshazzar and with everybody else in Babylon. They're putting their trust in their false gods. They're putting their trust in the walls that surrounded Babylon. They're putting their trust in their military might and the fact that they're inside Fort Babylon and they have closed everything up and they have enough food and wine and water to last them for a year or more and they think they can just sit out and wait the, the Persian army. But the problem is the Persians have their own plan. They have some great engineers and this is the night that they're going to fall. So they are uh, represented. This verse represents the false hope, the false confidence, the false trust of mankind. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and he will not see, that is, he will not have perception. He won't understand truth. He won't even know prosperity when he sees it. But will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. We went through this in detail last week. In contrast, in verse 7, we have the blessed man. This is represented by Daniel and Nitocris. These are believers who have assimilated doctrine, and they are applying doctrine in the midst of the crisis. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose trust is 
Yahweh. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, that is, when the pressure comes, when the outside pressure of adversity comes. He will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. Even in the midst of crisis, there is no stress in the soul. The believer is relaxed, calm, tranquil, and has the uh, shares the happiness of Jesus Christ. Its leaves will be green. It will still be productive and fruitful, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. The believer who's operating on doctrine does not cave in to worry, anxiety, fear. And does not cease yielding fruit. Whenever we cave into fear, what happens is we cease producing fruit. We're out of fellowship and we're in danger of self-destructing in our spiritual life. Second thing we saw is that only doctrine provides national stability. Only doctrine, that is the revelation of God, the word of God taught faithfully by pastor teachers can preserve the nation. This is seen in Proverbs 29.18, which is so often mistranslated, where there is no vision. This is not talking about some kind of prescient insight into the future of a church, corporation, or nation. Where there is no vision. Vision comes from the Hebrew word chazon, which means revelation. This is the revelatory vision God gave a prophet in the Old Testament. So this is talking about Bible doctrine. Where there is no Bible doctrine, the people are unrestrained. That means they run wild from the Hebrew word para. When people reject doctrine, they become lawless. They end up rejecting absolutes. But the contrast is happy or blessed is he who keeps the law. And as a result of doctrine, we saw the people run wild in a panic. They fall apart. They cave into fear, mental attitude, sins. And that is their weakness. And this is typical of any culture as it reaches its end. Last time, at the end, we quickly went over a quote or an analysis of history, first stated by Alexander Fraser Tyler, who lived from 1748 to 1813, in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Athenian Republic. And there he noted that there were patterns in every empire. There are patterns of their rise and their fall. And so he wrote it out this way. Man begins his existence in bondage. He begins his existence in bondage and rises from bondage through spiritual faith. When we're down at our very worst, finally we turn to God. Unfortunately for many people, that's the only time they turn to God. It's amazing how many people are suddenly talking about God in the last month. God bless America has been so overused in the last month, but it's nice that nobody's taking anybody to court when they talk about God bless America in public buildings. Man begins his existence in bondage and rises from bondage through spiritual faith, and then the next stage is he moves from spiritual faith to courage because it is doctrine that is the foundation for real moral courage in life. And then that courage allows him to move to the next stage, which is liberty, to fight for liberty. It takes courage to fight for liberty. Freedom is only won through military victory. Nobody ever had freedom in this life that they didn't earn, that they didn't fight for, that somebody didn't die for. And the freedoms that people have in this nation to disagree 
with uh, war, to get out and march against war, to express their pacifistic and cowardly ideas, uh, that freedom was paid for by men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice for that freedom. And it is a sad thing that people don't recognize that their very uh, ideals of pacifism are there because somebody died for it. Courage to liberty. Liberty to abundance. Once you have a free nation with a free market, you can have prosperity. And that brings abundance. But so often nations fail the prosperity test just as people fail the prosperity test. And what happens is we become complacent and we give in to arrogance and self-centeredness. So we move then on the decline from abundance to selfishness. And as we become more and more self-centered and self-absorbed, we become complacent. From selfishness to complacency. Then complacency leads to apathy. And people don't want to get involved. They don't want to sacrifice. They don't want to give up. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to change their life. They just would rather sell their, their security. They would rather sell their freedoms in order to remain secure. So they move from selfishness to complacency. From complacency to apathy. And from apathy to dependency, and finally, they complete the cycle from dependency back into bondage. When people become slaves in their soul, which is the result of living according to the sin nature, and any culture where the vast majority of the people are living according to the sin nature, with no restraint on the sin nature from either establishment principles in the law or from Bible doctrine, when there is no restraint on the sin nature and people are giving themselves completely over to it, they're enslaved to the sin nature according to Romans chapter 6. And the result is that that nation that is enslaved to the sin nature will before long because become enslaved as a culture. The only way to break this cycle is through Bible doctrine, through national change of thinking and where the priorities are shifted. But this did not happen with Babylon. They had the opportunity. Belshazzar probably heard the gospel many times. He was familiar with the God of the Jews. He was familiar with the Jews. He was familiar with Daniel, as we shall see. But he failed to heed the message. Let's review the setting. Daniel 5.1 says, Belshazzar the king, and we have seen that he is really the co-regent with his father Nabonidus. He is the grandson through his mother Nitocris of the great Nebuchadnezzar. Nitocris was probably the youngest or one of the youngest of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, and she married uh, Nabonidus. Belshazzar has been co-regent with Nabonidus since about the third year of Nabonidus' reign, and at this point, Nabonidus is in semi-retirement. He loved old things. He, he would have loved New England. He, uh, he loved to dig things up. He was always uh, rebuilding old uh, temples and uh, reconstructing them, so uh, he'd rather do that than sit in the place of power in Babylon. So Belshazzar, for all practical purposes, ran the empire, and it was falling apart because Belshazzar did not have the capacity in his soul to carry out the responsibilities to reign. He had rejected the wisdom that was given him, and so now he is consumed with arrogance, and he thinks that he has complete security inside the walls of the nation. So he has a party. That's what we're told, told in verse 1. 
Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. Now, this was really a small dinner party. We have historical records from the Persians where they would have, uh, Persian kings would have dinner parties for 10 or 12,000. So Belshazzar is just having a small little intimate get together here with a thousand of his closest friends and, and, uh, uh, most uh, needed admirers. And they're having quite a time. You can just imagine what it was like in there, in the, uh, this enormous banquet hall. All the noise, the, the din of all the servers and servants coming in, serving the meals, the clanking of the, of the dishes and the gold goblets and the silver goblets. And, and uh, they're enjoying their wine and the talk is getting louder and louder. And that's the background. We're told in verse 2, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, literally, actually his grandfather, the Hebrew term can mean father or grandfather. In fact, there are seven different ways in which the term father is used in the uh, Aramaic. Which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So he is going to commit sacrilege. At this point, now I think what's going on here is he's trying to demonstrate his control over the gods, and a reminder of one of the great victories they had over the gods, and that the gods of Babylon, the gods of uh, uh, Marduk, are superior to all of the other gods. And what has happened in Nabonidus's retreat, as the Persian army has come down from the south, they've just rolled up the Babylonian army. They've conquered one town after another, and every time Nabonidus went into retreat. He took the local gods from the temples and brought them all back to Babylon. So they lined the streets of Babylon with all the, all the various deities representing all the gods in the Babylonian pantheon. And, of course, there's no idol to represent the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Belshazzar is going to demonstrate their superiority there by bringing out the uh, vessels from the temple. But this is the height of blasphemy and a challenge against God. And it is no mere coincidence that it is as soon as he brings out the gold and silver vessels that the handwriting begins to appear on the wall. So he brings out the vessels, which the temple vessels which were in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, it's unusual in a dinner like this to have his entire harem there. But when it says his wives and his concubines, he's brought out his whole harem. So the suggestion is that they are having a wild party, they bordering on a Roman orgy. And from what we know about the, the uh, Babylonians, uh, they did not uh, shirk getting involved in some, uh, let's just say, some extreme sexual hijinks. So they are having quite the time, and, and everybody's getting good and drunk. And then in verse 3 we read, When they brought the gold vessels out that had been taken from the temple, the house of God. Notice the writer repeats that, so we get the point. Pay attention to the context. When they brought the gold vessels out, taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. So it's demonstrating that none of them have the right to. They're not Levitical priests. And so it is sacrilege. It is blasphemy. They are making a theological statement showing their superiority over God. Verse 4, they drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver. 
and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And here the structure indicates two different categories of gods. The gold and silver are linked together. These would be the higher gods, the higher idols, whose statues were made of gold and silver, and then the lower echelon of gods, whose idols were just built out of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In verse 5, we have the sudden, dramatic change. All of a sudden, fingers appear. Now, it's important to notice that the the Hebrew here is the word etzba'an. Etzba'an. And it doesn't mean hand at all. It's just the fingers. So you don't even have the appearance of the palm. You just have a group of fingers appearing on the wall. And suddenly, the place grows silent. God is going to announce his judgment and proceed to condemn the nation of the empire of Babylon at this particular point because Belshazzar has called divine judgment down upon himself. He has been exposed to the word. He's familiar with Daniel, but he has rejected it time and time again. Now, I want you to picture this. Archaeologists have discovered this particular banquet hall. It was enormous. It was 173 feet long and 56 feet wide. 173 feet long. That's about half the size of a football field, a little larger than about about 60 yards, and uh, probably a little less than 20 yards wide. So it was a it was part of the hanging gardens and was an enormous banquet hall that was used for all their, their state dinners. But not only have we found the, the banquet hall and the entrance to this room, but opposite the entrance, right, which is in the middle of the building, it's a large rectangular building, and you enter in from one side, and opposite that side on the long wall, there's a niche cut in the wall, and that's where the king would sit. And the entire interior of the wall was covered with plaster, which is what the text says, that the handwriting appeared on the plaster of the wall. And when the archaeologists discovered this, the pieces of the plaster were still there. So the Bible is very accurate down to the minute details when it talks about this plaster on the wall. It was a white plaster, and so the letters would appear very clear, even in the midst of the candlelight dinners. Remember, they didn't have electrical chandeliers. They didn't even have gas light. They just had various candelabra on all the tables. And suddenly this hand appeared above the king, and he's probably up there having a great time and telling a few jokes and sloshing his wine around. And all of a sudden he noticed that everybody's staring at him, and they're not talking anymore. And then he turns around and sees these letters begin to appear on the wall. And no one knows what they mean, and no one knows their significance, and he is struck with fear. Verse 6, Then the king's face grew pale. Instantly he is, all the blood drains out of his face. His thoughts alarmed him. And I want you to notice that this is a principle here that's true of every carnal Christian and every non-Christian. When an individual is on negative volition and operating on the sin nature, his conscience is always sensitive and will always give testimony to his failures given the right circumstances. And no matter how skilled you might be at covering up your conscience and at hardening your conscience and suppressing it, 
Sooner or later, you're going to get into some situation, and all of a sudden, all of those, uh, the, the, all those things in your conscience are going to come uh, bubbling to the surface, and you're going to become overwhelmed with guilt, and guilt always comes along with its handmaiden fear, which is the fear of discovery and the fear of having to pay the consequences for our actions. Fear is the result, then, of letting our mind focus on the wrong thing. See, his thoughts alarmed him. He's letting his mind focus on the wrong thing. He's not focused on the task at hand, and he becomes controlled by the emotional sin of fear. And the results are that his, he's physically destroyed. His hip joints go slack. His knees begin to knock together. He can't think. He can't move. He can't function. He is overwhelmed by guilt. Now, I want you to notice the contrast. We're going to come back and look at the doctrine of fear in a minute, but I want you to notice the contrast. Here, when the fingers appear and the handwriting appears, he falls apart. He just turns to jello right there in front of everybody, just like so many people in this country are just turning into jello right now. They don't want to go out of their houses. I saw an interesting report this morning on the news that um, in the last month, the income from Blockbuster, you know, the folks that have the videos, so you can go down and rent videos, income of Blockbuster has soared in the last month. People don't want to go out of their homes. They're staying at home and they're watching videos. And so the, the stock of uh, the video stores has just exploded in the last month because nobody wants to go out or go anywhere. And not only that, but they're probably trying to escape reality. So they're trying to find some good movie. Probably not a war movie. <laughs> Probably not a disaster movie. They're trying to find some movie in order to uh, in order to cushion the blow. Well, look at the contrast. Look down to verse. Um, look down to verse ten. The queen entered. Now, this is his mother. The queen Nitocris enters the banquet hall. She's the picture of stately decorum. She's elegant. She's poised. She enters the banquet hall. Everybody's quiet. Everybody's scared to death. You could hear a pin drop. She walks up before the king. We read, The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. That's standard address. That's how you had to preface everything. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. She immediately tries to get him to calm down, straighten things out. She is the picture of control, and she knows what the solution is. And she's going to tell him to call for Daniel. Verse 13, we see Daniel come in, and Daniel, too, is not going to be swayed by Belshazzar's bribes, his attempts to uh, give him power and money and reward in order to give him a good interpretation of what's on the wall. So we see, in contrast to Belshazzar, two believers who are stable, who are poised, who are calm in the midst of crisis, and who exude a, almost a, um, a bravado because of the fact that they understand the plan and purpose of God in the midst of a national crisis. So at this point, we need to stop a minute. We need to understand the doctrine of fear, what the Bible teaches about fear. First of all, we need to recognize that fear is used two different ways in the Bible. Fear is used two different ways in the Bible. First of all, it is used for mental attitude sin of fear. A mental attitude sin 
of it's an emotional sin that's characterized by anxiety, worry, dread, and panic in a crisis. It's aroused by real or perceived danger. It doesn't have to be a uh, a real danger. You remember when you were a kid and you turned the lights off at night and you thought the boogeyman was under the bed. A real or perceived danger, impending crisis, disaster, or evil. It's related to worry, apprehension, consternation, horror, and dread. Fear and all of these other mental attitude sins are a sign that we are converting the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul and that guess what is in control of your soul? Your sin nature is starting to run wild with you. There's only one solution and that's going to be confession of sin and getting your focus on doctrine, having some promises in your in the mentality of your soul that you can immediately recall so that you can begin to stabilize your emotions by focusing on doctrine. Whenever I think about this, I'm always reminded of a story that that um, that Charlie Clough uh, tells. When years ago Charlie was pastoring a church down in Lubbock, Texas, and one of the men in his church had been a bomber pilot in Vietnam when they started the bombing runs on Hanoi. Now, for some of you, that's ancient history, but others of you can remember that. And the first time he went in, and I don't know much about the strategy and tactics of bomber formations, but you stack them two or three deep, and you everybody's got a wingman, and you've got different layers, and everybody's protecting one another. And the last thing you want to happen is for somebody in the midst of this tight formation to start bailing out and zigzagging all over the sky and trying to avoid all the anti-aircraft fire. And so the first time this guy's going into combat and all of a sudden all the anti-aircraft fire starts blowing up all around him, that's your, he said that was your immediate response is you want to just grab the controls and start, you know, dodging all over the sky. And this guy had grown up at Baraka Church and back in those days, and to still to some degree, the pastor would, as I do, quote some verses. Now, that's one reason I always quote those different verses for each class is because for many of you, that's going to be about the only way you're going to memorize those scriptures is if you hear me say them week after week after week after week. And this is where I got the idea from, is that this guy, as he was going into combat, all of a sudden he heard the voice of Pastor Theme in the back of his head. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And he said he quoted that verse about 500 times before he got back to base that day. But he heard that just as clear as a bell, and that immediately stabilized his emotions. He got past the fear and focused on his task. So that is what we're supposed to do. Fear is related to emotionalism, and once you let any emotional sin control your soul, then you are in serious trouble. You become a prey for irrationalism, emotionalism, and you will become a victim of false thinking. So this is what we're going to address, the mental attitude sin of emotion, emotional sin of fear. second way in which fear is used in the Bible is related to respect, awe, or reverence. Respect, awe, or reverence. And this is about all we'll say about this category tonight, so I want to run through a few verses for you where it is used in this way. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, that is, other believers. That is not the brotherhood of mankind. That's a liberal idea. 
You do not enter into the royal family of God until you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that all men are not, do not have God as their Father. When Jesus was in a confrontation with the Pharisees, He told them, and these were religious, moral men, He said, You are of your father, the devil, that until you are born again, born from above, when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, that it is only at that point that we are adopted into the royal family of God. And so there's no such thing as the brotherhood of mankind and the fatherhood of God. That is classic 19th century religious liberalism and has nothing to do with the Bible. It's just, just religious fluff. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. That means to have reverence and respect for God. Honor the king. First articulated in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, 19. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn, these are, this is the instruction to the king, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Leviticus 25, 17. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. Psalm 111.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. And this is reiterated in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord, is the, that's the starting point. The fear of the Lord has to do with authority orientation. When we become... Uh, a little fearful of the Lord that it's a healthy fear because we know that a little divine discipline is going to come with disobedience and we realize the seriousness of our spiritual life. That's the beginning of learning. You don't really learn something until you begin to realize there are consequences for not learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then, of course, the same word for fear, the Greek word is phobaomai, and it is used in Ephesians 5.33 in describing the love of a wife for her husband. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she fear her husband. That's phobeo. And it's the idea of respect and reverence. I think it's interesting it doesn't tell the wife to love her husband. It tells her to respect her husband because that is a... Indeed, a high form of love. So, in this first point, we've seen that fear is used two ways in the Bible. First, as a mental attitude sin. And second, as reverence, awe, and respect. Second point, neglect of doctrine and failure to realize that security comes only from God is the root of all fear. The root of all fear is the neglect of doctrine and the failure to realize that security can only come from God, from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and Bible doctrine. Belshazzar, for example, had years to respond to doctrine, to the gospel, but he's, he is ignorant of the gospel. He's rejected it. He's aware of Daniel. He's aware of Daniel's past. He's aware of the God of the Jews, but he's rejected the gospel again and again. Remember, at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, when Belshazzar was probably 16, 17, or 18 years of age, Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years in insanity. So that would roughly correspond to Belshazzar's adolescent years. 
He knew all about it. When that was over with, Nebuchadnezzar published a proclamation that was read to every man, woman, and child in the nation. And it was an evangelism tract. And that was Daniel chapter 4. And yet, Belshazzar is not a believer. He has rejected the gospel again and again. So fear starts because we neglect doctrine and we fail to realize that real security, genuine security, comes only from Jesus Christ and Bible doctrine. Third, fear is a failure to real uh, fear is a failure to think under pressure. Fear is a failure to think under pressure. Instead of thinking, you're emoting, you're feeling, you're operating on uh, adrenaline surge. Fear is a failure to think under pressure, and it is the realization that our own attempts at security are fruitless. Realization of our finitude. Fear is an irrational and an emotional sin. We need to realize, as part of this, that fear is the basic... Get this in your notes. Fear is the basic emotional sin that goes with arrogance. Fear is the basic emotional sin that goes with arrogance. In arrogance, the creature thinks that he amounts to something. He thinks he is somebody. He's impressed with himself. He thinks that he has the ability to solve his problems on his own, and he's smart enough to figure out how. But deep in his soul, every creature knows he's limited. He knows his limitations. He knows he can't do it. He knows he can't be the uh, source of his own security. And as soon, in, and in arrogance, as soon as the creature is confronted with some problem, some crisis that's too big for him to handle, then immediately the emotional sin of fear takes over. See, in arrogance, we think we can solve everything, but as soon as something comes along that's too big for us, immediately the first reaction emotionally is fear. This happens in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, Adam eats the fruit, and then we're told they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This was uh, standard operating procedure in the garden. Every day the Lord came and spent time with Adam and Eve and taught them, and they interacted about creation, and they were learning about creation. They were learning about all of the animals. They were, they were observing things. They were making observations. A- Adam... Adam and Eve had IQs that we can only imagine. I mean, they, they came straight from the hand of God. Their, their intelligence was far beyond anything we could imagine. And every day they're, they're exploring this new creation. They're learning about everything. And now God comes to spend time with them this day, and there's something different. This time they run and hide. The man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Rather than coming out, welcoming Him, looking forward to this time, they run and they hide. Why? Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And the Lord knows where they are. He's omniscient. He's saying this, asking this question rhetorically in order to get them to focus on where they are. They're hiding. They're not out coming to greet Him. And He, verse 10... This is the man says, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So what is the first sin after eating the fruit? It's fear. 
Fear is the first emotional sin experienced by man in his arrogance after the fall. Fear is the core emotional sin that goes hand in hand with arrogance. We're going to have to develop that out uh, eventually, understanding all the dynamics of the arrogance complex, starting with pride and the uh, emotional complex starting with fear, but we'll save that for another, another Bible class. So the core emotion is fear. Now keep that in your memory because in a few minutes we're going to get to a passage in 1 John which is going to say something that goes completely counter to what most people think. And if you don't have Genesis 3.10 as the background, you won't understand what's going on in 1 John when we get there. Fourth point. For the believer, fear begins with failure to learn and apply doctrine. For the believer... Fear begins with failure to learn and apply doctrine. Once the believer is out of fellowship, once you sin, once you decide try to solve the problem on your own, then sin begins to gnaw away at the soul. It eats away, and all of a sudden that foundation of doctrine that you've built begins to erode. Fissures appear. The soul begins to fragment. And the only way to recover is to use 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we recover fellowship. Now we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. And now we can continue to advance in the spiritual life. And if you're still alive, no matter how much you've been out of fellowship, no matter how fragmented your soul, there's always recovery. There's always a, a grace procedure for recovery. Fear, we must remember, cannot coexist with the operation of the Holy Spirit in our spiritual life. They are mutually exclusive. With doctrine, we say the battle is the Lord's, and as soon as we think the battle is ours, we set ourselves up for attack and fear. A couple of things that go along with this. First of all, subpoints: People who live by fear are intimidated by life. People who live by fear are intimidated by life. The believer who lives in a state of fear lives with an emotional cancer that's eating away at his soul. Second sub-point. Fear eliminates motivation. First, from personal love for God. Second, from a personal sense of destiny. And the believer succumbs to worry, anxiety, guilt, and all the other sins. Third, fear of death. This is all under point four, just some subpoints, some observations. Fear of death will never prevent your death. But it will destroy your enjoyment of life. Fear of death will never prevent your death, but it will destroy your enjoyment of life. And then a final observation. Fear is being overcome by the problem, enmeshed in the crisis, and engulfed in emotion. It is not security. Okay, point five. Fear is often thought to be the opposite of stability, the opposite of tranquility, the opposite of happiness, but it it is rooted in an understanding of God's love. That's the point. Fear is not the opposite of stability or peace. Fear is the opposite of love. See, most of you are sitting out there and you thought hate was the opposite of love. Well, let's pay attention to what the Scripture says. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 
We're not going to have time to go through everything in this passage, but I just want to hit the high points. 1 John chapter 4, because this is truly instructive on our spiritual life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Now, that takes us back to a whole range of studies we've done on this Greek word minnow. And minnow relates to fellowship. So we're talking about the believer in fellowship with the Lord. God abides in us when there is fellowship and His love is perfected. Now, that's a bad translation. I hate it when the Greek translators translate this word group with that word perfect. Perfect implies flawlessness. But the word group teleos, teleao, telos in the Greek, has to do with two things. Quality. Quality. Flawlessness is quality. Perfection is quality. It also has to do with quantity, completing something. And I have yet, with one possible exception, to find any place in the New Testament where this word group refers to flawlessness. It refers to completion. If we love one another, this is the exercising those advanced spiritual skills of uh, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. If we love one another, God abides in us. We can only do that if we're in fellowship with God. And His love is brought to completion in us. That's the process of spiritual growth. By this, we know that we abide in Him. There's going to be some evidence. How can you know if you abide in Him and He in us? Because He has given of us His Spirit. In other words, it can only be produced by the filling of God the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life and demands a supernatural means of execution, which is the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, that is, admits, acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, full undiminished deity, God abides in Him and He in God. See, that's not talking about salvation. Abiding is sanctification. It's not salvation. This is talking about the fact that we have to recognize the deity of Christ or we're not going to be in fellowship with the Lord because we'll be operating on a false concept and false doctrine. Verse 16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides, that is, stays in fellowship with God, stays in fellowship with love, abides in God, and God abides in him. So there's this interconnection that John is developing here. Boy, are we going to have fun with this when we get there on Sunday morning. This will take about six weeks to exegete through this passage because of the interconnections. By this, love is matured with us. There's our word teleos again in verse 17. By this, love is brought to completion or matured in us, literally that we may have confidence, hope. Notice how love is related to confidence in the day of judgment, because He is, so also are we in this world. And now here's the verse I've been headed for. There is no fear in love. Notice the juxtaposition. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. That There's our word again. It's not perfect love, it's talos. It is complete love. This is the believer who has grown to maturity in his love for God the Father. Completed love casts out fear. It is love that casts out fear. That's exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. They were afraid and they hid, but God responded in grace and love, and that dealt with the problem of fear, because in grace and love God provided the solution. So what stabilizes fear 
is the love of God and coming to grips with the grace of God and salvation. It is complete love casts out fear. And when we, and in this passage, it is a love for God. That's implied in verse, in the next verse, we love Him because He first loved us. There's a textual problem there. And it should read, we love Him. And I don't have time to deal with why, but we'll look at that later. That should read, we love Him because He first loved us. So that establishes the context of talking about love for God. There is no fear in love for God. That's the issue for the believer. You advance in your spiritual life to the point where you really comprehend and understand personal love for God, and then you're not afraid anymore. You're not worried anymore. You're, you're not tying yourself up in knots over every little problem that comes along. You have peace, stability, and poise because you are motivated by the love for God. You know of His love for you and that He's provided everything and He's in control and you're not in control so you can relax and have stability. This takes us to point six, which is that God's love provides all the security we need. God in His grace... That's why it's sufficient. Sufficient means more than enough. It supplies everything we need. God's love, grace is the uh, expression of His love to uh, undeserving sinners. God's love provides all the security we need. Failure to abide in fellowship then is a rejection of divine provision and divine security. So the first emotion is fear. Failure to abide in fellowship. You quit walking by means of the Spirit when you encounter some crisis. What you're really doing is rejecting God's grace provision. You're saying, God, your grace provision isn't enough. It's inadequate. I don't want it. I can do it myself. And you're saying His security is no security and you can do a better job yourself. In effect, that's what's going on. And the result of that is we come face to face with our own limitations and the consequent emotion is fear. God's love and grace provides all the security we need. Point six. Fear, worry, anxiety are the key warning signs that our confidence has shifted its focus from God to man. Fear, worry, and anxiety are key warning signs that our confidence is not in God, but in man. As soon as you start becoming afraid, as soon as you become anxious, as soon as you feel worry welling up inside you, instantly a red light ought to go off and say, I need, to, I need to confess my sins, I need to apply some Scripture, I need to have some promises ready to go. If you don't, fear will snowball. Point number eight. This is the snowballing principle of fear. First of all, the more things you surrender to fear, the more things you fear. You start off fearing one thing, the next thing you know, tomorrow you'll fear two things. And the next day you'll fear three things. And then four things. The more things you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear. And that's what's happening with a lot of people in this country today. They've surrendered their security to fear, and now more and more things are keeping them home and keeping them from engaging life. They're letting the terrorists win. Second, the extent to which you surrender to fear, the greater is your capacity to fear. See, the more things you fear, the more things you will fear. The more you give yourself over to fear, then the greater your capacity for fear. You become characterized by fear. The greater your capacity for fear, then, the more you increase 
the power of fear in your life. The greater your capacity for fear, the more you increase the power of fear in your life. And fourth, the more you increase the power of fear in your life, the greater your mindset as a failure, as a failure believer, and the greater your chances of failure as a believer. A few typos there. The more you increase the power of fear in your life, the greater your mindset as a failure believer, and the greater your chances to fail as a believer. And you just go through a deteriorating downward spiral until you flame out in the Christian life. Point number nine. Fear is a sign that we have put an abnormal emphasis on self. Fear is a result of self-absorption and self-indulgence. We're indulging, our, and then we become fearful. We indulge our emotion. All of a sudden, something happens. The first thing that happens, it's natural sometimes because we're sinners, to become afraid, and we have to deal with it immediately with doctrine. But what happens is that you focus on that. We indulge that fear. We give in to that fear, and then it sets the snowballing principle in motion. So what's the solution? Point ten. The solution to fear is orientation to grace because it is God's love that's going to cast out fear. Orientation to doctrine because it's the principles of the Word of God that are going to stabilize those emotions. And personal love for God the Father because that is what's going to motivate you to be able to endure whatever consequences are or whatever the crisis is that gives rise to your fear. So the solution to fear begins with orientation to grace, proceeds through orientation to doctrine, and then to personal love for God the Father. Now, what are some promises we can focus on? Let's close out by focusing on some promises in the Word that you can write down, that you can start memorizing, so that when the crisis comes, you have something in your soul to wrap your uh, focus around, other than, uh, well, Pastor Dean said that God's in control, so I'm just going to rely on that. Let's have some... Some passages here. Psalm 27.1. The psalmist says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? This is a basic a fortiori argument. The argument from strength. That if God is for us, and since nothing is greater than God, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if God is taking care of me and nothing is greater than God, then why should I be afraid of anybody else? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Light refers to doctrinal orientation. Salvation, grace orientation. Whom shall I fear if the Lord has done the maximum in providing salvation for us at the cross? Then the Lord can handle any other problem we face. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 27.3 Though a host encamp against me, A host is the antiquated English word for army. This is the same word that's used, Sabaoth, that refers to the Lord as the Lord of the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies. Though an army encamp against me, 50,000 to 1. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Psalm 49.5, that's a good verse for today, by the way. Psalm 49.5, Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? 
Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? The answer, of course, is doctrine. Psalm 56.4 In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Just write down the references, look them up later, get a three-by-five card out, write out the scriptures, tape them on your dashboard, tape, tape them on your kitchen cabinets, tape them on your mirror, Rehearse them again and again. Psalm 56, 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my deliverance. Isaiah 41, 10, a verse that you all should know by now. Fear thou not, I always memorized this in the King James when I was about eight years old. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I like the King James better. It has more rhythm. You know why that is? Why it's easier to memorize in the King James? Because the King James was written by men who, who paid attention to the rhythm of the language because it was going to be read out loud. And that's how most people were going to hear it and learn it, was because it was going to be read out loud in the pulpits. And so they wrote it so it would have a cadence that would be easy to speak, and, e- and therefore it's easy to remember. Second Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He has not given us a spirit of timidity. And then closing with Philippians 4, 5, and 6. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, uh, 5, 6, and 7 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have the confidence from your word that you have told us how things are. You have declared the end from the beginning and you control history. That despite the chaos around us, the uncertainties of our times, in fact, the insecurities that face this nation because of the threat from these terrorists, we can have stability. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing for us to be afraid of, nothing that should shake us, nothing that should cause us to to cower, to retreat from life, because we know that our lives are in your hands. And even if there is a a cause of our death, we know that it is just absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, so we can have genuine confidence, peace, and stability, no matter how horrendous the circumstances surrounding us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that this evening they would make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a penalty for your sins. He paid the price. Therefore, there is nothing you can do to add to it. You don't have to make a bargain with God, join a church, reform your life, or any other human work. All you simply do is accept the free gift of salvation. You trust Christ as your Savior, that he died on the cross as your substitute, was buried and rose again on the third day. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things we've studied tonight and challenge us with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.